Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 10 today. Uh, I'm hoping that Zach is going to preach from that, so we're going to read it and see what happens. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Thanks for that scripture reading, Mike. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. All right. The people who are here, the cream rises to the top, you see. So we're glad that you are here, uh, even though it is Memorial Day weekend. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach Lee, one of the ministers here on staff. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. While you're turning there, I want to tell you a little story. Uh, A few months ago, we had a little staff retreat here, and uh, some of the guys on staff, we kind of got away for a few days with our wives and with our kids. And uh, while we were there, we were just kind of hanging out one day at the dining room table, and we were playing some some board games and some card games and these kind of things. And all of a sudden, a few of us started doing little card tricks, all right? Not witchcraft, but just little magic tricks there at the table. And uh, Carl Brower's son, the guy that did the announcements, who's our family minister, his son Taylor was there. And we all of a sudden decided we're going to start trying to play tricks on and try to prank Taylor. We didn't, we didn't say that verbally. We just kind of telepathically looked at each other and kind of nodded, and that's what we all decided to do. And so what we would do is I'd be like, here, Taylor, pick a card, any card. Don't tell me what it is. And he'd take it, and I said, I'm going to guess your card. Now, little does Taylor know that, like, Jeff or Tim is standing right behind him like three of hearts, three of hearts. And so I'm like, Taylor, did you draw a three of hearts? And he's freaking out. He's like, well, how did you know that? There's no way you could know that. David Blaine, get out of my head. And so we just kept doing little tricks like this. So I said, you know what? Why don't we do this? I'm going to go in the other room, and I'm going to close the door. You pick any card you want. Show it to these guys, wink, wink, but don't show it to me. And so I then go in the other room, and he picks, I don't know, a jack of spades. And so then I come out of the room because they have texted me his card. And I'm like, Taylor, look me in the eyes. I can read your thoughts. Did you pick a jack of spades? What is happening, right? And we're making up reasons. He's like, how are you doing that? And we're saying things like, well... When you progress to a certain level in your spiritual walk, you can read people's minds. So we're messing, you become like a Jedi, right? So we're just messing with them. And then my favorite trick that we did was I took a a number seven, I think it was like a seven of diamonds, laid it down on the table. He didn't see that. And I said, Taylor, I just want you to pick any number between one and 10. Don't tell me what it is. Don't tell anyone else. It's just in your mind. Any number between one and 10. What's your number? And he said seven. And I said, pick up the card. And he picks it up. I mean, there's no way. He didn't show it to anybody. I just got lucky. I had a one in 10 chance of that working, and it worked, and we owned him, and it was awesome, all right? Now, the reason I tell you that is because Taylor knew we weren't really reading his mind. He knew we weren't really doing magic, but there was this little weird question mark in the back of his mind. How are they doing this? 
I know they're not really reading my mind. Are they picking up on some sort of tell, some sort of nervous tick or something like that? And so the reason I mention that is because I think when it comes to the topic of grace, we have a tendency to say, yes, the Bible teaches we're saved by grace, but, and we want to put this little question mark in the back of our mind. Yes, but if we give people grace, are they going to run into licentiousness and run into evil living? Yes, if we talk about grace, what about the passages where the Bible talks about that we're supposed to do good works? So a lot of us have this idea of grace in our mind that has kind of an asterisk next to it. God saves me by his mercy, but. And my goal this morning is to try to get rid of that fine print, to try to get rid of that little asterisk so that you can realize that this text really says that God's gift and salvation is as free as it seems to be. I've studied this text for years, and I'll be honest with you, over the last two weeks as I was preparing for this sermon, it's the first time in my life that I finally realized that this text really does say what I had always hoped that it said, what I had always hoped that it said. And so we're going to walk through that today. Before we do, I want to give you a refresher from last week if you were not here. Jeff did an excellent job of walking us through verses 1 through 3. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 are all meant to go together. We broke them apart so that we could focus on each part. So last week, we talked about our sinful depravity before we come to know Christ. And today, we're going to talk about God's response to that depravity, okay? So last week, Jeff taught on the topic of what is known as total depravity. You might have heard that term, total depravity, the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean you are as bad as you could be, okay? Some of us can act worse than others. To quote one pastor, you might be a shark or you might be a guppy, but you're still a fish, all right? So total depravity is not we're as bad as we could be. Total depravity also does not mean that we cannot do any deeds that society would deem to be noble deeds, okay? So someone who's a total pagan can help a little old lady cross the street. The doctrine of total depravity is that you can do no good in God's eyes before Christ. It's not that you're as bad as you could be. It's not that you can't even do deeds that society would think to be noble, It's that before you come to know Christ, you can do no good in God's eyes. That's what it means to be totally depraved, that sin has so infected us that it affects our mind, our will, our emotions, all of it. So even the good deeds we do before becoming a Christian in God's eyes are a sin. Anything not done in faith is sin. Anything not done to the glory of God is sin. So what I'm saying is something very strong, and it's the same thing that Jeff mentioned last week. It's not just the case that before Christ we sinned. It is the case that before Christ, all we did was sin. We saw that last week. When the Bible talks about our sinful state apart from Christ, it says things like we are dead, by nature children of wrath, that there's none who does righteous, no, not one. Mankind, biblically, now this is not popular in society, but biblically mankind is not born good. Mankind is not born neutral. Mankind is born sinful and depraved. Who in here has had to teach your kids how to lie? Anybody? Anybody in here have to teach your kids to bite another kid to get what they want? Anybody? You had to show them how to do that? No, in fact, you've spent your entire life trying to teach them to do what is right. It almost seems like that sin stuff somehow is already in them. All right? We say, Zach, well, they're not sinful. They they just don't know any better. That assumes that you have to know better for something to be sinful, and that's not a biblical idea either. And so last week we talked about what is called total depravity, that before we come to know Christ, we're not just like a little bad. We're not just like a little wounded. That We are spiritually dead before God. And now today, we're going to see God's response to that. Let's look in verse 4. Verse 4. But God. Now, that is supposed to be a shocking contrast right there. Okay, You would expect for this text to say, so God. If you look at verses 1 through 3, it talks about how we are dead, belonging to the devil. That's the prince of the power of the air. By nature, children of wrath. You would expect then this text to say, so God condemned everyone. 
That would be the expectation. But the first thing that hits you in this text is this contrast. God is going to do something that's unexpected, but God. Look at the next part. Being rich in mercy. Last week, we saw that mankind is born naturally evil, so we do evil deeds. Here, this text is going to talk about God's nature. God's nature is not like ours. God's nature is holy. It is perfect. God, who is rich in mercy, this is one of his characteristics. You were like this, and therefore you did this, but God is like this, and therefore he does this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. The reason that God loves us, according to this text, is not something in us. The reason that God loves us, according to this text, is something in God. The reason for God's love is his love. He just decides to give it to ruin sinners like you and me. That's just what he does. That's just who he is. In fact, God is actually the only being in the universe that can truly love you unconditionally because he's the only being in the universe that doesn't need stuff. He's the only being in the universe that doesn't need anything. I I think we like to think that our love's unconditional. I like to think that my love for Katie is unconditional, but if she were to cheat on me every single day, my love would change. I like to think that my son, the love he has for me is unconditional, but if I stopped feeding him and stopped playing with him and stopped putting a roof over his head, his love towards me would change. You see, God is the only being in the universe that can truly just decide to pour out his love unconditionally because he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, as the book of Acts would say. The reason for God's love in this text is something in God, not something in us. Verse five, even when we were, give me the word, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Pop quiz, church. You ready? According to this text, when does God first decide to set his love on us? A, at our conversion when we come to know Christ. B, when we finally clean up our lives more and do better and conquer that one sin we've been dealing with. Or C, when we were his enemies, when we were dead in sin, when we hated him. C, According to this text, I see Gabe in the back of his hand raised. See, yes, that's right, all right? According to this text, it's when we were dead in our trespasses. Listen, this is why this is so important. If you can realize that God loved you when you were his enemy, if you can realize that God loved you at your worst, surely he loves you today, though you struggle with whatever you struggle with. That the fact that God didn't just send send his son to die for sinners, he sent his son to die for his enemies while we were still his enemies. It's incredible. Even when we were dead, in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Okay, now this is important that we see the contrast here of our dead state, which we saw last week as well, and God's response to that. I heard an evangelist one time get up and he used an illustration that has made me mad to this day. Okay, here's what he said. He said, it's kind of like all of humanity is out in the ocean and we're just drowning in our sin. Maybe you've heard somebody say this. We're out in the ocean, we're drowning in our sin, But Jesus takes a lifesaver. He takes a life raft, and he throws us the life raft. And though we're drowning in our sin, it's our job to hang on to the life raft. You ever heard that? The problem with that analogy is this text does not teach that we are drowning. It teaches that we are drowned. If you want a better analogy, we're at the bottom of the ocean, dead. Fish have begun to feed on us. And so Jesus dives down, grabs us, pulls us up out of the water, and breathes new life into us. Our spiritual state is that we are dead before Christ, not just merely wounded or drowning, but really actually want Jesus. The text is clear. There's none who seeks for God. No, not one. Read Ephesians 2. Read Romans 3. Read these kind of passages. If Jesus were to throw us a life raft when we were drowning in our sinful state, we'd take a knife and punch holes in it and try to pull him in the water. 
That's what we would do, okay? That why we are in our trespasses, dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. The reason I'm trying to get you to see this is there's a tendency for us not to understand how much grace God has towards us if we think that before Christ, we were basically pretty good. That we were basically pretty good. Let's say, so there's a cemetery down the road. Let's say we all, as the Parkway Church, went on a field trip to that cemetery, and I said, guys, I want the people here that are dead in the cemetery to trust in Christ. Let's start witnessing to them. And so we walk around, and we're talking to the ground, and we're talking to the tombstone, and we're like, hey, do you want to believe in Jesus? What's that person going to do? It's just going to be dead, right? That's what dead people do. That's the one verb they do, is they just remain dead, okay? What if I get up and I preach a sermon, and I say, hear me, dead people, Would you like to repent and trust in Jesus? He died for you on a cross. He's the Son of God. Come forward. How many people are coming? Zero. What if we get an organ and we play just as I am? Over and over. We work up the emotion. Just How many people are coming forward? No. What if I get Billy Graham in his prime and he's up there and he's preaching? The buses will wait. Come forward. How many people come forward biblically? Or we don't have to just say biblically, practically. No one. Why? Because we're dead. That is our state before Christ. We have a tendency not to see that. We have a tendency to think that we were not as bad as some guys. We were basically those spiritually wounded. And this text is going to say that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not just wounded, but dead. What I'm trying to get you to see is that salvation is, and Jeff used this term last week, salvation is, uh, there's a term that we use in theology. It's called monergism. All right, monergism. The salvation is monergistic. That means one energy or one work. It's not a cooperation between God and man. It's not what's called synergism. It's not where God does most of it, but I do a little bit. Dead people don't do a little bit. That's why I gave the cemetery analogy, all right? So listen, this is really important. Grace does not mean that you do the best you can and God just makes up where you lack. That's how a lot of us think of grace. That is not Christian. That is not orthodox, that is not Protestant, that is not evangelical, that is not Baptist, that is not Christian. That is Mormon, that is Muslim, that is some other religion. In Christianity, grace is not that God makes up where you lack, it's where God does all of it. It's not that I did 90%, but I failed, but God will just make up for the other 10%. No, grace is not unmerited favor, grace is demerited favor. I was not merely neutral, I was in the negative, and Jesus did all of it for me. He lived the righteous life, all of it for me. He took all my sin on the cross. He does all of it. It's not this cooperation between God and man. I'll tell you a little story. When I was uh, dating Katie, her family had this little cabin. Uh, They had some little land, kind of a little cabin, little ranch. And so we went up there with Katie's mom, Katie's brother who's here today, his friend, and uh, we were having a lot of fun. So we're riding around four-wheelers, and guys, there were huge mosquitoes. Like I tell you that, it has nothing to do with my story. It just sticks with me to this day. All right, they were like hummingbirds. They'd land on you, you'd hit it, it hits you and fly off. Right? And then you'd have to eat lemonade and cookies because you just were so low on blood. They were enormous. And so we're, we're playing outside, we're shooting guns, we're riding four-wheelers, not at the same time. And, uh, and so we're out there. And uh, what we decided to do is some of the guys, we decided to get together and play airsoft. Okay? Airsoft is where grown men shoot each other with plastic BBs. Okay? This is why women live longer than men, because men are dumb. So... We're playing airsoft, and I go to take a step, and I feel a sharp pain in my foot. And I look down, and I had stepped on a stick that went through my shoe up into my foot. So I immediately sit down, and I'm like, hey, guys, hold on, time out, which makes me nervous, because I think they're going to be like, he's on the ground, cut, 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 cut. But so I'm like, hey, time out, hold on, I stepped on a stick, and they're like, 
Time out, you stepped on a stick. All right, so, so Brian comes up and he sees me on the ground and he's like, hey man, what's wrong? And I said, I, I stepped on this stick and I can't get it out. It's lodged up in my foot. I can't take off my shoe either. And he goes, oh man, that's no problem. So he grabs me, throws me over his shoulder, like, uh, you know, Superman style, and starts carrying me back to the cabin. He's skinny, but he's really strong. I'm still dating Katie and I'm still trying to impress her. So here I come over his shoulder. I'm like, hey Katie, I stepped on a stick, you know, and I'm just hanging like this. And the reason I give you this analogy is, it was not this cooperation. I didn't put one arm around him and kind of hobble on one leg while he carried most of the weight, but I carried some of it. In fact, this analogy would have been even better had I died from the stick, right? <laughs> the point I'm trying to make, though, is we have to realize when God redeems the heart of a sinner, this is not a cooperative effort. It is God looking across the sea of condemnable humanity saying, no one in their own sinful state will choose me, therefore I will open their heart. Therefore, I will open their heart. Let's look at verse 6. Verses 6 through 7. What else did he do? Why we were dead in our trespasses. In addition to making us alive together with Christ, verses 6 through 7, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable. Notice that word immeasurable, by the way. Not God's grace that's limited. Not God's grace that has a lot, but he runs out of it. The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's my question for you. What does this text mean when it says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places? What does that mean? Because if I look around, it doesn't look like I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. Don't get me wrong, this is a nice facility, McKinney is a nice city, but this isn't heaven. What does it mean that I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places? Here's what this text means, ready? That when somebody puts their faith in Christ, they are united to Christ, and what's true of him is true of them, okay? Let me give you an example. Imagine a circle, okay? And the title of that circle is Jesus, okay? How perfect does the Father see Jesus? 100% perfect. How sinless does the Father see Jesus? 100% sinless. Does the Father love the Son? You bet he does. Well, when I become a Christian, because God has opened my heart, what happens is I am put inside that circle, and what's true of Christ becomes true of me. How perfect does the Father see me? 100% perfect in Christ. How sinless does the Father see me? 100% sinless in Christ. Does the Father love me? You bet he does because he loves Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. I died at my conversion, and now it is only Christ. And so what this text is saying is there is a sense in which, because you are in Christ and he is seated in the heavenlies, there is a sense in which that's true of you as well. Now, one day we will be resurrected, and that will actually be true physically, but there is a sense now spiritually where that is true as well. Let me give you a little, uh, little story. There was a guy I used to work with named Dennis, and uh, he and his wife one time went out to uh, go out on a date. They went to go get some Mexican food. So they go to this Mexican food restaurant. It's a Saturday night. It's packed. There's a line out the door, and so they're getting in the back of this line, and the host who doesn't speak English very well. I almost said very good. That would show that I don't speak English very good, okay? The host, who doesn't speak English very well, starts going through the line and saying, okay, how many in your party? What's your name? How many, in your, how many are in your party? What's your name? So he gets to my buddy, and he says, how many in your party? And he says, two. And he says, what's your name? And my buddy said, Dennis. And the guy said, D -D Dennis? And he said, yeah, Dennis, like Dennis the Menace. And the guy's eyes got really big, and he said, you're Dennis the Menace? Meaning, 
that's not what my buddy meant. My buddy just meant my name, Dennis, is like in the phrase, Dennis the Menace. This guy thought, though, that he was claiming to be the actor who had played Dennis the Menace. And so the host's eyes get really big, and he says, come with me. And he takes them, bypasses the line, sets them down at their own table, and gives them great service. He then brings a menu and says, my mother back in Mexico is the biggest fan of yours. Would you please sign this menu? And so he goes, sure, Dennis the Menace, right? So there's a little old lady in Mexico right now with a forged autograph up on her mantle of Dennis the Menace, okay? Now, the reason I tell you that is, was this guy the actor that played Dennis the Menace? No, but by being associated with him in that guy's eyes, he got all the rights and privileges thereunto appertaining, all right? It's the same thing when we come to know Christ, that we die to our old lives and now we live in Christ and what's true of him becomes true of us. He's loved, he's perfect, he's spotless, he's sinless. He has a relationship with the Father. He's seated in the heavenlies and there's a sense in which so are we, so are we. Okay, now, I wanna do a little demonstration. I know that's weird, don't worry, it's not a magic trick, Taylor, wherever you are, uh, but I wanna do a little demonstration. I'm gonna use this mic stand. I don't typically use props but I'm gonna use this mic stand for this demonstration real quickly just to tell you the so what of this passage. Why is this passage important? Okay, when I lift up this mic stand, you might not be able to tell, it's pretty skinny, but the bottom of it is weighted. It's pretty heavy, okay? Now, when I lift up this mic stand, that's gonna represent that I am fighting and struggling against sin. Everybody with me? So when I lift up the mic stand right now, this represents I'm fighting and struggling with sin. When eventually I give in to sin, that's when this mic stand hits the ground. That symbolizes that I've actually committed the sin I was fighting. Everybody with me? Okay, so in our Christian lives, in my Christian life, I see some sort of temptation, some sort of struggle, some sort of fight against sin. And what that does is that pulls on me. That strains me, okay? Now, I can hold this mic stand longer than some. There are others that can hold it longer than me. But eventually what happens is I start to feel the pull on my arm. My arm gets tired. No matter how strong you are, eventually you can't just hold this up forever. So I'm fighting against sin, and I'm trying to resist temptation, and then... I commit the sin. So then I go before God and I say, God, I am so sorry, I'll never do it again. Pick this right back up, <clears throat> fighting, struggling, trying to resist sin, trying to win in the battle against sin, and <clears throat> I commit the sin. God, I am so sorry, I will never do this again. I just keep saying, just, I'll do better, I'll try harder. <clears throat> Pick it up again. Sin, and we will repeat that process 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. You will not conquer sin in your own strength. You will not conquer sin by trying harder. You will not conquer sin by white knuckling through it. What I need is I need somebody whose arms don't get tired. I need somebody that when I'm straining with this, I can say, You take this. You take this. I can't take this. It's too heavy for me. That's why this passage is important for us. This is, it reminds us that the way that we see victory in our Christian lives is by realizing that Christ has done it for us, that we are in Christ, not by trying harder. It's not go do your best for Jesus. It's recognizing that Jesus did his best for you. By being in Christ, what's true of him is true of you. It's by submitting your life to the power of the Spirit, not five ways to try harder and beat sin. And so what I'm saying is this. You will grow in holiness in your Christian life when you realize that God loves you even if you don't grow in holiness. You'll grow in sanctification even when you realize that God loves you even if you don't grow in sanctification. Not by trying harder, but by saying, Jesus, take this. And there's a sense in which you've already taken it. Now, don't get me wrong. We will sin the rest of our lives. We don't believe here at Parkway in what's called Christian perfectionism. 
okay? We will sin the rest of our lives. Think about how many times I've sinned just this morning. If you ask me, Zach, when's the last time you sinned? I don't have to be like, uh, three years ago I was at Starbucks, right? I've probably sinned hundreds, maybe thousands of times this morning. Because when you realize that the Bible teaches that sin is not just an action, but also thought patterns, attitudes, these kind of things, I've sinned a ton. I wasn't thankful. I didn't thank God for keeping me alive throughout the evening. I haven't loved God with all my heart, mind, and soul and strength at every second this morning. I've had doubtful thoughts. I've had anxious thoughts. I thought of a guy I was still mad at, and I felt bitterness well up in my heart and unforgiveness. I mean, we sin all the time. What I'm saying, though, is if you realize that you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, for any particular sin that pops its head up in the middle of the week, you can say no to that. So when you're tempted to be anxious in the middle of the week, you can say, Christ died for me, I don't have to be anxious. When you're tempted to lust in the middle of the week, you can say, Christ died for me, I don't have to give in to that sin. I think a lot of us are carrying around broken chains. You have no idea how many guys I talk to that say something like this, Zach, I'm just waiting for God to deliver me from pornography. And I say, if you're a Christian, he's already delivered you. The bigger question you have to wrestle with is why do you still walk in it? Why do you voluntarily want to do that? That's a deeper theological question. Zach, I'm just enslaved to anxiety and fear. I'm afraid of everything. I'm just waiting for God to deliver me. If you're a Christian, he's already delivered you. The bigger thing you have to wrestle with is why don't I believe that's true? Because I don't feel that way. Your feelings are liars. Your feelings are liars. Your feelings will always scream louder than scripture. They're just a heck of a lot less true. Just a heck of a lot less true. Okay, sorry for my weird uh, demonstration. Let me put this mic stand back. No more props, all right? No more props. Just a normal sermon from here on out. Okay. Verses seven. Look at verse seven again. Why did God do this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God did all of this just to show us how great God is, just to show us how kind he is, how compassionate he is, how inclined to clemency he is. It's just to show his kindness, kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Look at verses eight through nine. I agree with uh, Mike Boss. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Look at verses eight through nine. Memorize these, print them out, write them on your mirror so you can memorize them when you brush your teeth, get them tattooed on your forehead, do whatever you have to do to memorize these verses, all right? These verses are everything. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Just in case he has not made himself clear enough by the fact that we are dead, belonging to the devil, by nature children of wrath, and God just decides to give us grace and make us alive, he now gives six qualifiers of this grace. Let's look at them. Ready? First of all, it says, it is by grace. What does that mean? It's something you don't earn. It's grace. That's what makes grace grace is that you don't earn it. It's free. Through faith. Through faith. You don't go do things to get the grace. You receive them with empty, empty and open hands. Not our own doing. It's something God does. It's not something we do. It's meant to show God's work in this, not ours. Again, salvation is not a cooperation between God and man. It is the gift of God. What is a gift? It's something that's not earned. If you pay me because I work for you, that's called my salary. This is a gift. Not the result of works. In case you were to say, well, yes, it's by faith, but it's also by works. Not the result of works, according to this text. So that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. If part of your salvation is up to you, then you get to rob God of glory for all eternity. 
For all eternity, you get to pat yourself on the back just for that little part that you did. So if 99% of salvation is up to God and 1% is up to you, then he only gets 99% of the glory for your salvation for all eternity while you get to strut around with your 1%. No, it's so that no one can boast. Let me, let me say this, especially if you grew up in church, okay? Especially if you grew up in church, please hear what I'm about to say. Legalism is evil because it seeks to rob God of glory. It seeks to say, I wasn't really that bad, so I didn't really need Jesus' death that much. This other guy, he really needed it. I just needed like two or three drops. He needed all of Jesus' blood. Legalism is evil because it seeks for you to get to be a savior alongside of Jesus instead of bowing to him to be the savior. Let me ask you this question. Which is more dangerous? Licentiousness, which is where you just live like the devil, do whatever you want, or legalism, where you try to earn God's favor and think that you're saved by keeping your checklist of do's and don'ts. They're both equally dangerous because they both equally don't rest in the grace of Christ. We have a tendency to think that legalism is safer. These are more churchy sins. These are more socially acceptable sins. This is where it's safe. The problem is if you look at who Jesus actually really gets mad at, it's all the churchy religious people why he allows the prostitute to cry at his feet and shows her mercy. Legalism is not righteous, it is not safe. It seeks to say, I don't really need God as much as others. That's why we have to see that we're dead so we can see how much grace is actually in this passage. Christianity is not about whatever checklist you have of do's and don'ts. Don't get me wrong, there are do's and don'ts in Christianity. But that's not, that, that comes as a result of the fact that God saves us by grace, not so that he will save us by grace. Christianity is not about your checklist of do's and don'ts. It's about the fact that we hated God, we're dead in our sin, following the devil. He decides to give his son for his enemies and redeem us and adopt us and make us his children, though we have contributed nothing but our own sin to the process, and he's just that good and gracious. That's just who God is. Jonathan Edwards says we contribute nothing to our own salvation other than the sin that made it necessary. Other than the sin that made it necessary. Now, just in case you don't believe me from this verse, I want to sufficiently beat this dead horse by showing you a bunch of other verses. Okay, I just want to keep beating this dead horse until it's, you know, just horse juice or something, all right? I'd like to apologize for that gross analogy, but you get the point. I want to show you a bunch of verses. I want you to look for words like grace. I want you to work, look for words like faith. I want you to look for things where it says not of works. I want you to look at things where it talks about God's mercy. We're going to put them up on the screen for you. I'm just going to run through them. Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 10, 8 through 11. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 3, 23 through 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 3, 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
2 Timothy 1.9, talking about God, it says, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is not just one obscure text in the Bible. I could pick more. I just want to give you a sample of this, okay? Now go back to verses eight and nine again. I want you to see one more thing here. It says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. What does the word this in that sentence refer to? Look at it for a second. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Does the word this refer to grace? Does it refer to faith? Does it refer to salvation generally? Does it refer to the works he's going to talk about in verse 10? What does it refer to? You see, in English, it's actually really hard to tell. It's kind of like this sentence. The girl smelled the flower with her nose before she picked it. What did the girl pick in that sentence? The flower or her nose? Let me say it again. The girl smelled the flower with her nose before she picked it. You can't tell in English. It's too difficult. If you're going to be funny, you say it's the nose. Probably, though, it's the flower, right? You just don't really know. Well, in Greek, this passage is actually clear. In Greek, the word grace has a feminine ending. The word faith has a feminine ending. The word this has a neuter ending, which means it's not trying to just refer to one or the other. What it's saying is all of the salvation process I've just been talking about, including the grace and faith, is given to us by God. Let me say it stronger. Even the faith, according to this text, you have to believe in God comes from him. Yes, Zach, I believe we're saved by Christ, but I'm a good decision maker. I was smarter than all those other sinners. I, I at least had the faith. You mean you were dead and God gave you the very faith you needed to believe in him? That's what this text says. Even the faith to believe in God comes from him. And faith is not some sort of work. It's not like God says, I'm not impressed with you, but now you've earned this because you believed hard enough. That's not what faith is. Faith is empty hands that just receives this good gift. Faith is not this effort. I talk to a lot of people that say, man, I, I think I'm a Christian. I really do want to follow Jesus. I know you're saved by faith in Christ, but how do I know I really have faith? Well, here's the good news for you. You don't have to have 100% perfect faith. You can cry out like the man who says, I believe, help my unbelief. You only have to have a mustard seed of faith. If you have 1% faith and it is in Christ, that's a mark of regeneration in your heart. Lost people have 0% faith in Christ, okay? To say it another way, there's a theologian named Sinclair Ferguson, and he says, and it's a great quote, he says, weak faith still gets you the same strong Christ as does strong faith. As does strong faith. Verse 10, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only does God ordain our salvation, he also ordains righteous things for us to walk in from an eternity past. Here's what you have to see, though, about this passage. This is really important. Okay, ready? Verses 1 through 9 come before verse 10. That's really important. You have to understand that before we start talking about works and our role and what we should be doing as Christians, we have to understand that we are already saved by grace through faith alone in Christ. We are not saved by works. We're saved by grace. We're saved for works. That's the purpose to which we are saved. And you cannot get those backwards. It is not, I'm saved by God. It, it, it is not, I will do these good things to be saved by God. It's, I am saved by God, therefore now I will do these things. You cannot reverse those. If you reverse those, it will ruin your life. 
It is that I was dead in my sin. I was saved by grace through faith, period, done. God loves me, adopts me, forgives me. Everything's good. And now that that's already the case, now I walk in righteousness. Christians walk in righteousness. That's okay. It's when you're trying to walk in righteousness so you can earn the favor of God that it shows a mark of you might not really be a Christian. It is, I'm loved, therefore I do. It's not, I do, therefore I'm loved. You cannot get those backwards. We're saved by grace through faith for good works. I think we have a tendency to, when it comes to a verse like this, to want to pump the brakes on grace, to want to pull the reins on grace. It's not a spectrum. It's not like grace over here and uh, works over here. And we were over here, but now this verse shifts us down the spectrum. That's not how it works. We're saved by grace through faith alone. And then once that's the case, we now walk in what we've already been given. We now walk in what we've already been given. Every passage in the Bible that tells you to do some sort of good deed or some sort of act of righteousness is written to a congregation that already understands they're saved by grace through faith because they've already had the gospel preached to them. You cannot miss that context. You cannot miss that context. Jeff told a story last week of a uh, buddy of his who was, was kind of arrogant. At first, I thought he was talking about me. Uh, so, but he told a buddy of his that was kind of arrogant that he had as a roommate in college and this guy would always find a way to talk about himself. And so what Jeff and his roommates started doing is they just started calling him coffee for no reason other than to see how long it would take for him to come up with some awesome story of why they called him coffee, okay? So they're just like, yeah, coffee. They start calling him coffee. They're at parties or whatever. They call him coffee. And they're just waiting to see how long it will take for this guy to try to make a reason for why they're calling him coffee, although there was no reason. So Jeff said he walked in one day, and this guy is laying on his back, and he is bench-pressing the coffee table. 98, 99, oh, sorry, 198, 199, 200. That way, when somebody says, why do they call you coffee? He can say, well, I bench-press our coffee table 200 times. That's why they call me coffee. And Mark Landers said something that I thought was really, really, really insightful after that. He said, we were talking in the hall, and he said, Zach, that's kind of what we do in salvation. God gives us this name. He gives us the name of Christian. He gives us the name of son or daughter in Christ. And what we then do is try to earn what is free. We try to work into our name and in our own strength bench press the coffee table so that we can get the name coffee. And I thought, man, that's exactly right. It doesn't work that way. You get the name and therefore you do the action. Not, I do this action to get the name. You cannot get those two confused. You cannot get those two confused. As Christians, we are to walk in righteousness. We are to do these good deeds. But to do those thinking you somehow earn God's favor or you do this so he loves you is doing what the Pharisees do that Jesus calls sons of their father the devil. We're saved, therefore we do. We're saved by grace for good works, not the other way around. Not the other way around. I heard a pastor one time say that uh, he, was doing a, uh, <clears throat> he was doing a wedding and in the middle of the service, the groom interrupted him and the groom takes the bride's face in his hands and he looks her right in the eyes and he says, I will not divorce you. I will not divorce you. Do you think that bride then goes, yes, I could cheat on him all that I want? No, she is so humbled by his love that now she wants to be even more faithful. Well, that's exactly what happens in salvation. What Christ does is he puts his, our, our face in his hands and he looks us in the eyes and he says, I love you. I will not divorce you. And it's because of his love for us, it's because of his grace towards us that we then say, if you have that much love for me, if you care for me that much, I, I'm happy to honor you. I'm happy to honor you. Grace precedes the works. 
not the other way around. Not the other way around. Okay, I want to mention one more thing, and I want to read a uh, quote for you. Here's what I want to say. If you are someone in here who does not know Christ, okay? Now, look at me. This is more important for, I think, our context. Statistically speaking, even at a church our size, statistically, there are even some members we have here who have not been regenerated, who do not really know Christ. So if you're thinking, well, he's probably talking about somebody else, I might be talking about you. What I want you to do, if this, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this message of grace. Maybe you've heard about Christ. Maybe you've heard about these kind of things. That's how it was for me. I didn't become a Christian until I was 18, and I went to church every Sunday. How did I not become a Christian until I was 18? It's because the missing point that I didn't hear was the grace. It was the grace. So maybe this is the first time you've heard this. Maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian. If that's you, in a moment, when we pray, I want you to cry out to Jesus. I want you to repent of your sins. I want you to call Jesus Lord. I want you to ask him to save you. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to raise your hand or come up. Or Just right there in your seat, beg Jesus to have mercy on you. If you're not a Christian or if you don't know. For everyone else, I want to say this. If you already know Christ, where is the area in your life where you are trying to earn a gift you've already been given? We all do it. It's a natural tendency of the human heart to try to atone a little bit, to try to be a co-savior with Jesus. Where is that? Because here's the thing. If you will learn that this text talks about grace being as free as it, as it says that it is, that is your way to walk in joy, in love, in righteousness. It's everything. When fighting against the enemy, this text is a nuclear weapon. This text is sarin gas against the devil. All right? I, I feel, so I'll let you know just a little insight into my own life. Ever since becoming a Christian... I always have these condemning thoughts. Not something verbal or something like that, but just I have these condemning thoughts in my head. Zach, maybe you're not really a Christian. Zach, you need to do better. Zach, you love things more than Jesus. Zach, maybe you're going to hell. I have those thoughts going through my head all day, every day. They don't stop. All the time. That's what I'm hearing. Condemning thoughts kind of going on in my head. And I think a lot of that's spiritual attack. And I think what I used to do is I used to say, no, I'm not that way. I do love Jesus. No, I'm not. I'm actually doing pretty good. What I'm learning to do is to start agreeing with those and just saying, yeah, but Jesus. Zach, you're a sinner. That's true, but Jesus died for me. Zach, you deserve hell. That's true, but I'm not going to go to hell because Jesus died for me. Zach, you love things more than Christ. I do love things more than Christ. I'm a broken, sinful idolater, but Christ wasn't, and he died for me. You see, there's a reason why this text doesn't just stop verses 1 through 3. This is even why when Jeff talked about it last week, he, he mentioned the but God part. The devil preaches the first half of the gospel that we're sinners and we deserve condemnation. What he leaves off is the fact that Jesus has done it for us. That Jesus has done it for us. So wherever you are with God, I want to encourage you to ask him to help you as we pray in a second. I want to end with this quote from Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. This is one of my favorite quotes ever. So hear this quote, and then I'm going to pray. As we pray, if you need to ask Jesus to save you, do it. If you need to repent of sin, do it. If you need to ask God to show his love to you more, do it. And as I pray, if the men would come forward for communion. Let me read this quote for you, though, first. Ready? But remember, sinner, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even thy faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not to thy hope, but to Christ, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of thy faith. And if thou doest that, ten thousand devils cannot throw thee down. But as long as thou lookest at thyself, the meanest of those evil spirits may tread thee beneath his feet. 
It is not faith, it is not our doings, it is not our feelings upon which we must rest, but upon Christ and on Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you that you've given us such assurance and such confidence in your love. I thank you that uh, you sent Christ to take my punishment. I deserve to get crucified because I've rebelled against you, but he does it in my place. I've not kept your word. I've not kept your law, but he's kept it perfectly. I thank you for that. You didn't have to do that. You're gracious. And I just thank you that you chose this punk high school kid when I was 17, 18 years old, mad at the world, just to show yourself to, just to open my heart for the first time to really get that your grace is just based on your grace. You're just that good. You're just that merciful. You're just that awesome of a God. And so we thank you for today. I pray for anyone in here who might be struggling, might be hurting. Would you show yourself gracious to them? Because you are. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.